night and the last week of the wasa. Not like these are conventions that we have in, in this particular uh, religious convention. The you know convention conventional reality always has a beginning and an end. Uh, so I always like to reflect on that, on you know, just to observe the feeling of just the wasas coming to an end, because uh, it's a different feeling when uh, you're thinking the wasa is just beginning. The, the power of words, the conventional forms affect, you know, how they affect us. So that you're reflecting. You're not. There's no other than you know. There's nothing to see other than just notice. Just like when somebody's alive, and then you hear they're dead. It's the same person. Uh, maybe you don't even know them. Maybe, maybe there's somebody you know about. But the difference between life and death, beginning and end, starting something and ending it. Now, of course, this takes this use of this reflective ability, reflectiveness of the mind, awareness, satisampachanya, is this noticing the way it is. So the, the vasa hasn't quite ended yet. And Then the pavarana, and then the katinas. So this is in the future. So these are these are words that trigger off for many of us. Some of you don't, probably who aren't acquainted with the terminology. What's a katina? What's a pavarana? It's the jargon of the Theravada school. Mm.
because we you know the the discerning ability to to uh, you know this discernment or the use of wisdom in Buddhism is is developing the discerning uh, faculty and you can't really discern anything until you're mindful because you know we usually are critical of things we know this is bigger than that and this is better this is worse day and night and so we we uh, we apply it to the conventional world or the conditioned realm. So like convention, the institutions we have, we create conventions to uh, that are you know like Theravada Buddhism. Um, Vinaya is a convention. Um, even the, the 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 Dhamma teachings are conventions. The scriptural teachings, conventions, language is convention. <clears throat> Culture uh, and all this is our convention, con- what we call conventional realities. And so we, we, you know, we can live our lives within these conventions, identifying with the conventions alone. And so this is because the wisdom faculty has not been aroused and not being used then we, we identify very strongly with the conventions that, we, that we're attracted to or that are part of our culture. So we become institutionalized or addicted or, or uh, habituated to the convention, conventional world as the real world. Nowadays when people talk about the real world, it's usually the conventional world that they think is real. So you aren't living in the real world up here at Amravati. The real world is down there in London, you know, having a mortgage and (laughs) having wife and family and all the rest is the real world. Uh, We're escapists because the, the, the real world. If never questioned, you know, if never if on the conventional world, if you don't question it or see it with a discerning ability, then it is real for you. It is, it's more real than, you know, it's, it's reality. The modern stress, the, the problems of Britain in this time, the, the, the government and the, and all the, Political problems, economic problems are real, you know, that, that's facing the real world. So then the conventional reality, the, the body then is, is a convention in terms of we create it into something like I'm a, a male and a female and, a, and we identify with it and uh, and its needs and its desires and its habits are identified. We identify with the whole thing. You know, so human bodies, uh, you know, are they're like this, and they and we have cultural attitudes about um, the the relationship, how we relate to our bodies as being clean or dirty or whatever or sacred or profane uh, these are 
are conditioned. So conditioned phenomena and conventions. When we contemplate conditioned phenomena, then we're we're looking at uh, the with with this discerning ability. You notice when you in the initial stages of vipassana meditation, you're always contemplating the three sinyata, the three characteristics of existence, anicca, dukkanata, because these are common to all conditioned phenomena. And conditioned phenomena is, can be the material world, the, the body, uh, the, the, the rupa, the, the, that which we can see, the obvious things like the mountains and the stars and so forth. Then whatever we hear, smell, taste, touch, think, feel, all of it is called sankhara or conditioned phenomena. So all, all sankharas are impermanent. And this impermanent, and each is in the, the way of beginning to look at conditioned phenomena, not through, in a conventional way, like saying what is good and what is bad and right and wrong and better and best, but just noticing that that uh, conditioned phenomena is the very nature, whether it seems solid like like a, a rock or it's a very ephemeral experience like a thought. You know, we can, we can actually witness the, the ephemerality of thoughts very quickly, or emotions, or uh, that, uh, but rock of Gibraltar might seem permanent, it looks, and, the, and our bodies definitely seem more permanent to us than our thoughts or emotions. So it's not a matter of what is, what, you know, the time span, whether it's a second or a million years. <laughs> That's not the issue, is it? It's just, you, you can extrapolate from just noticing the way uh, conditioned phenomena is, as, you, as it is in your mind, the way your mind moves, your thoughts or emotions come and go. And uh, they begin and they end. And uh, then from that you, you can, you know, even with modern science would not disagree with the fact that the rock of Gibraltar is, has not always been there and it will eventually change into something else. So the real practice then isn't really, you know, debating about the nature of the rock of Gibraltar, but the, but the, whether how many years it's going to take for it to disappear, because uh, that is a waste of time, you know, just speculation. But the the reality of the here and now is where we focus. So the the changing conditions of feeling, of of sensory impression, of sight, smell, taste, touch, thought memory, emotion. Through the body and through the mind. <coughs> when I use the word mind, I, I like to use this as an English word, so it, it's, it's used, meant to be the 
the conditioning of the mind. So it, uh, it, it doesn't include consciousness uh, as because the not uh, because consciousness uh, it has this expansiveness. You can't you can't objectify consciousness, but you can objectify thoughts or feelings, memories, emotions through the senses, sensory experience or emotional experience, uh, happiness or suffering. Um, elation, depression, fear, anger, lust, greed, all these are jealousy, boredom, all, all of these are, we can actually witness, too. we can observe their changingness. <clears throat> but consciousness for us at this time and experience is like, is, this is the experience, the consciousness isn't is like the space in this room, in this temple, isn't it? It's not something that you can, uh, you know, you, it's present, so you can actually discern it when you kind of awaken to it. But, but it's it's not a, an object so much as a, as just the as a uh, as a, a thing that arises and ceases, but a continuum. It's immeasurable. It doesn't seem to have boundaries, it's like space and consciousness. So, but they notice that all the, can, all the mental factors then are changing, you know, they try to sustain something, a mental feeling, and see how long you can keep it. You know, you, if you, you know how, how long can you stay happy to the same degree. <laughs> and so the Buddha pointed out that these emotional states are, you know, that when conditions arise, we feel happy. When the conditions of happiness are here, then this is the experience of happiness. When the experience of misery arises, this is misery. So in this capacity, we reflect on this. Now if we're attached and bound to the the, what we call a conventional reality as our only reality, then we are helpless victims of circumstances. Isn't that? It? It's just not fair, really, in terms of the shoulds of life, the ideals. You know, things should be fair, and should, we should all love each other, and we shouldn't fight, and all that kind of thing. And yet, uh, you know, it's not fair that somebody really good and kind and spent their life for, or, you know, helping others and, and doing good work in the world suddenly gets cancer. And it's not fair. <laughs> if Saddam Hussein got cancer, we think he deserves it. But uh, our sense of what's just, what, what, what is justice, what's fair and right, these are creations of the mind. Discerning then is being able to discern at this moment, to know the conditions of the mind or conditioned phenomena as it is. And, and that means that 
we're no longer discriminating so much. We're not interested in the quality or the quantity. Uh, and just recognizing the, 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 the way it is, the conditioned phenomena, when, when you really accept it and observe it, detach from it, it you, you know, it's obviously something that is in the process, in its changingness. You can, you can, you begin to recognize in, in the reflection, reflection on the Four Noble Truths, the, the arising and the ceasing of thoughts and feelings, emotions, impressions. So in, when we're attached, when we're not aware, when we're, when we're lost into the conventional reality as the reality, then of course we are. We're thrown about by the experiences of life. And it's, it's the, because that's the way it is. When, when, you're, when you become something, then you're subject to the conditions that are affecting it. And so, uh, you know, you become somebody who, whose feelings get hurt, who feels they're being treated unfairly, or that they're better than somebody else, or worse, or you get upset because things aren't what they should be, and the world isn't what it should be, and, and you, yourself, maybe not, you know, you, maybe you hate yourself even the most, because you're not what you should be. So, and, you know, we find here, one of the problems in the in a country like this, people tend to be very critical of themselves. They don't discern. They, they criticize because they, they know how they should be and they don't really like the way they are much of the time. So we, we, and this is why we get neurotic and confused by it all. And then the only way out of, of that delusion is to awaken to it and this awakening process uh, through sati sampachanya or awareness and developing panya or discernment the discern the condition to really first of all you investigate condition phenomena so you really you become so aware you know uh, for many years I just watched and observed both on the gross and subtle levels of conscious experience you know, from the most obvious things like the changing of the seasons, day and night, and and uh, things like that, to through through just visual consciousness, or just noticing sound. You know how you know a noise or a sound or music begin and end, and uh, taste and smell touch and and then uh, thoughts and emotions so that you if you keep at it and you really use it on everything you know even subtle things and very personal things and it's not a dismissal, like some people that say they practice vipassana are merely dismissing something, like they just 
kind of grasp the idea of impermanence. That it's all impermanent and, and it's a kind of excuse or a kind of rejection of something. And it, 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 it's, not, it's not it. It's not grasping the idea, but using that as a suggestion for reflection, not a teaching that you grasp hold of and believe in. So this was, you know, my insight really into Nietzsche was very quick, so, because it's not all that, you know, it's quite obvious. Uh, and it's, once you, you know, once you start contemplating change. And, and of course, then I began to may, may have this conundrum in my mind. Uh, you know, every, all sankharas are impermanent. Is there any that are not impermanent? And of course, if I see it as a doctrine, Buddha said they're all impermanent. Everything is impermanent, and, and then, uh, then, and then, how can you even doubt the word of the Buddha? That's not the point in doubting, but it's learning to explore things. Sometimes these kind of questions, rhetorical questions or conundrums, will help to to uh, focus your attention. Because when I first started meditation, the only, only thing I could really relate to was the change, was conditions. You know, myself as a personality seemed the most real thing in, in the world. You know, I certainly am this person, this body. You know, there's no question on that level. <coughs> because I come, that's conventional, that's the reality that, I'm, that I've never questioned. So in Vipassana, you're actually questioning conventional reality, not, not criticizing it, not finding fault with it. You know, even if a lot of the conventions are silly or stupid, it's not the point of whether they're very good or very stupid, but they're, whatever they are, they're, they're, you're aware of their, you're awakening to the, the way they are in the present. And the way they are in the present is the reality of change, anicca. So things change, they always have a beginning and an end. You know, the condition phenomenon is not ultimate, it's not eternal, it's not uh, uh, the, the, the true Dhamma, it's not uh, deathless. So death always is a word we use about condition phenomena, isn't it? About the body is going to die. When we say somebody's died, it means their body's died. The body's dead. But death is, uh, you know, is, is another word, isn't it? And so that word conveys the end of something that one is very attached to. And that end and what, what happens when something ends? You know, if, when somebody dies, where do they go? Do they have a soul that reincarnates or they go to heaven, hell, or just disappear into a void? And so the, this is the, you know, we, the, the mystery of death haunts many people. They're frightened of it. Trying to get some people to face, face up to the fact that they're going to die some people really refuse to contemplate it because it's too scary for them. 
and the involvement in the conventional reality is uh, such a strong commitment to the conventional reality. You know, you can absorb into it. You can completely distract yourself endlessly with conventional reality. You get lost in it, and, and when th something gets too boring or you, whatever, you, you change to something else. When something ceases, you don't reflect on cessation, you merely go off to the next thing. What's, what's next? <clears throat> so just noticing this in, the, in this space as we, as we develop this awareness. Awareness is an inclusive ability. It's not, it's not a state that is, it's not a special state of of mind that, that depends on conditions supporting it. So it's, it's you know, when we point to the here and now, this begin to notice, just this sense of presence, openness, receptivity. Begin to, to just awaken and recognize sati or awareness, mindfulness. The natural state. And natural I mean you, you don't you aren't creating it out of desire or or fear or anything. It's not, not something you distract yourself with. Where if you're developing a lot of concentration practices then you can. You have to you have to hold your attention on something and concentrate on it and, uh, and exclude everything else. Where with sati, the kind of concentration that sati gives us is this uh, what I call right concentration, samasamadhi, uh, because it, it includes, it's not, it's, not a, it's not divisive, doesn't divide anything. And it also sustains itself once you trust in it and rest in it and relax with it, open, this openness. And so it, it doesn't seem like anything when you're trying to judge it by conventional standards. So this it's, it's is my encouragement to recognize it, discern it. And from this then you develop the panya or the wisdom. Because the wisdom is the discerning, the real from the unreal, the condition, unconditioned, grasping, non-grasping, self and non-self. So in the reflection on Dhamma, which are apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation leading onwards. Santitiko, Akaliko, Ehipasiko, Upanayiko, Bhajatang, Vetidapo, Inyuhi. Santitiko, apparent here and now. No. You know, it's, it's not, not something that, that, you know, wherever you are, it's here and now, and it's apparent. <laughs> 
hakalic or timeless, is a, not a matter of day and night or how you're feeling or, or the season of the year or how old you are or whatever. Ehipasiko, encouraging investigation. And uh, I think in the Pali, Ehipasiko is a more kind of imperative or an invitation to it. It's like, come and see it, you know. Have a look now. Rather, encouraging investigation makes it a little too abstract, you know. Encourages to investigate what? <laughs> No, but Ehipasiko uh, has this kind of immediate, this immediacy to it, like, wake up, see it, you know, come and have a look, uh, the invitation. And then, open uh, go leading onward. This, you know, to, once you, once you start once you recognize or discern, then of course it, 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 your your path develops from that. Once you can discern the condition from the unconditioned, the self from the non-self, grasping from non-grasping, suffering from non-suffering, then then it you know the it it you're there really. Once you begin to to remind yourself, to recognize, to to uh, really trust in that insight, and not just form views about somebody yourself having insight. And sometimes we have insights, and then we then we form views about our attainments. We go back into the old mode of the conventional personality again. to be experienced individually through wisdom. It's not something, you know, it's a, it's a word Lung Po Cha used to use all the time. It says, it's budgetang. He said, what, what is nirvana and all that? It's budgetang. <laughs> Entirely take Pali words. And, uh, and, they, and so Bhajitang, we can even take it into the English <laughs> context. So you have to realize for yourself that this is not something somebody or an outer force can do, you know, like asking Buddha from the, out there to enlighten you. <coughs> you'll never, you'll never uh, recognize the Dhamma if you committed to that view, that way of looking. Then this discerning is uh, is non-critical. So that's why I say when when there's sati sampatanya and when you're not criticizing things, you know, even if you're in a bad mood, um, in a horrible mood, you know, to discern it means to recognize it is what it is. It's not criticizing and saying how you shouldn't have such 
terrible thoughts in your mind or anything like that. Or you should only think pure, lovely, loving thoughts. And, and then you're back into the conventional world again. And you're a person, you become a person who, uh, who's trying to uh, get rid of the bad and hold on to the good. So in this way you're transcending good and evil, right and wrong, through this awareness. Good and evil, right and wrong are conventions. You know, the conventional reality, that relates to the sankharas, the conventional world. So what is it that knows? And then and the more you trust in this awareness, then you begin to realize that, as I, I've used this many times, that the point is right here, you know. At this moment, your objects in consciousness as an experience. The conventional reality say there's Ajahn Majira, Ajahn Arisila. <laughs> Then, then, then we go into the conventional mode, which is all right too when it's appropriate. I mean, but if we just only know that, then we never, panya never uh, will develop. You might be able to <clears throat> manipulate the conventional world or live within it in a very honorable way and be a great person and and uh, a saint or something like this. You know, a hero martyr or any other possibility on the theme of conditioned uh, personalities. So the conventional realities are not rejected. It's not that we, we live in a world without conventions afterwards, but it's discerned. It is what it is. It's acknowledged. It can be used skillfully after that with wisdom rather than just through prejudices, habits, blindness, ignorance. And you can see in the Buddhist world of the present time how, you know, just through attachment to the conventions of Buddhism one can become very uh, opinionated and very, you know, divisive about everything. You know, you get into snooty attitudes about we're better than you, and and those that's grasping the convention of Buddhism, which is not liberating. You know, they aren't going to be liberated through grasping Buddhist convention. So taking recognizing this that that it's not a matter of being better than anything. Even a, a, a convention that's inferior, if used mindfully, will be liberating. You know, <laughs> if used with satipanya, <clears throat> if mindfulness is the, is the essence, is the practice, then, then that... Uh, it's not a matter of having to have the best convention. 
It's, it's how willing you are to really awaken to yourself, mainly. It's a, the external world is, uh, can be rather, you know, is much easier to accept than, the, than a lot of what goes on inside us. The subtleties of denial and fear and, and uh, mental states like that, that we, we uh, you know, we spend a lifetime maybe avoiding or refusing to acknowledge. Once you really awaken and appreciate it, you realize there's nothing to fear. You know, the fear comes out of not knowing, like death. That's really frightening for some people because it means you don't know. And, you know, even if, even if the authority comes along and, and uh, says, um, you know, tells you, you know, the, the Buddhist authorities, uh, and tells you, oh, there's rebirth or reincarnation and all that, you still don't really know. It, it just makes you feel that you know something. You know something. So death is, a, is, is frightening for us. It's like the fear of what, you know, about ourselves. So that we'd like to maybe live in a world of delusions, illusions, you know, lovely illusions that make us feel good. But even, you know, when we try to live like that, you know, it doesn't really work for very long. <clears throat> you can only sustain illusions for very short periods of time and then, and then they fall apart and then you've got to look for another one. This is what a lot of stress is about, this constant searching, running around, looking for something. And opportunities now for, you know, for distraction and for pleasure are, are probably at more than at any other period of human history. You know, we have this super duper technology to play with. And, Opportunity, you know, the airplane and you know, the travel and and uh, opportunities for all kinds of interesting, exciting things to do. So then, the rat race or the stress factor increases. You know, people are very stressed out. They say. Because, you know, this, it's, it, it gets very stressful. You're just caught in this whirlpool of, of uh, you know, movement. And you don't know how to get out of it, except maybe get drunk or take drugs or do something, you know, to, to kind of blot yourself out for a while. <clears throat> so then, um, those are unskillful ways of doing it. Because they, they, you know, they, they're conditioned and they don't lead onward into liberation. They might just reduce the, the stress for a while. And then it comes back like drug addiction. It takes you over. You become totally obsessed with the, with the substances that you have to have. 
Then the liberation comes through this awakened attention. And it's relaxed, it's open, receptive. And you, and you can see that, uh, you know, reflecting on first the impermanence and the, the, the dukkha, the suffering. What do we mean by suffering? Not just labeling things as suffering, but noticing suffering or dukkha. So you, you're awakening to dukkha, as, as, not as some kind of preconceived idea, but recognizing some things that we think we like are really quite unpleasant when you really awaken to them. When we're very conditioned to think suffering is this and, and happiness is like that. And, and so we seek happiness a lot. <clears throat> and because happiness is gives us the, uh, you know, it, it's something that we want and we try to find. Suffering or pain, uh, emotional stress is something we don't like, we try to get, out, get rid of. But we begin to recognize that dukkha, that Pollywood dukkha, covers much more than just the kind of negative uh, side of conditioned phenomena, like uh, the opposite of, of happiness. But it, uh, but it is the, the nature of conditioned phenomena. It's, so suffering uh, isn't such an adequate word, actually more like unsatisfactory. Conditioned phenomena cannot, cannot truly satisfy you. When you're seeking for satisfaction, you know, best you can get from conditioned phenomena is a kind of momentary gratification. So you, know, you get gratified, you reach a peak, and it's great, absolutely fantastic, and then, and then, it, then it changes. <laughs> So you live for the next peak, doing the things in order to, waiting for the next peak experience. So, so then you recognize this whole process of running around trying to find happiness and then trying to run away from suffering or unhappiness. Even the running after happiness is unsatisfying. Except we, it kind of blinds us. But when you really look at this, this drive to find happiness and peace and love and success and all the rest, this dr driven, this kind of desire that, that we attach to, then you realize it's, it's uh, unsatisfying in itself. Desire itself is unsatisfactory. So you're developing the panya faculty, getting to see things as they are, not through any adoption of anybody else's viewpoint, but it's an insight. So jnana dasana, the Pali words for insight, these are like these are from the gut, so the kind of gut knowledge. It's not it's not uh, uh, a viewpoint that you 
you hold because somebody told you that it's true. When something's known through Nyanadasana, you know it. And, you know it's a, you know you don't need to ha have it verified or proven. You just know. Then as you break down, break through the illusions you have about yourself, being the, the five khandhas, the body, the, the consciousness, the feeling, the perception, and mental formation, when you, when you see the anicca of all those, like sense consciousness, and this, this sense is impermanent, isn't it? You, through sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and that is the senses are the very nature. When you're experiencing consciousness only through senses, then you're, you're experiencing impermanence. So we're getting beyond the senses, to, and the way beyond the senses is, is awareness, sati sampajanya. So that is when we recognize that and, and it's to, dis, to discern that sati is like this. I had to do this because I didn't know really what sati was when I first started. I thought it was concentration because I started with the Mahasi method where you walk very slowly and do everything very slowly and this development of sati. So then the impression was that in order to be mindful you have to do everything in this kind of slow movement. And uh, But then I thought, this isn't going to do much good you know, for most of my life because I certainly don't want to live my life walking this slow. <laughs> <laughs> and eating that way was, was a real effort of willpower. Anyway, you know, so then, and then uh, I realized I get very concentrated with it. You get very concentrated. If you develop that very slow way of doing everything. And then uh, I began to, you know, as I understood what they meant by sati, then I realized it wasn't, wasn't, didn't depend on the speed of movement or anything. It's the ability of, of just a simple way of being present, you know, it's, a, it's quite clear in the scriptures. But then how we interpret scriptures is uh, oftentimes through abstractions of our intellect, you know, because we, we haven't really awakened to the realities of our intelligence or feelings or sensory experiences. We're really operating through habit, habitual patterns. And so, the awakenness is, is you're getting outside the momentum of habits. So you you can actually witness your habits, your thinking habits, your emotional habits, your physical habits, the way they are, the bodily functions as they are in experience, not through abstractions about physiology or anatomy, but awakening to the reality of the body as as it is now. 
with its pain or pleasure, heat or cold. <clears throat> Very obvious things that we just tend to react to. We never, you know, it's so easy to just react to something. If you have physical pain, just to, to uh, try to get rid of it rather than recognize. So when something gets unpleasant, then we have aversion to it. You don't like the unpleasant. <clears throat> so then the aversion is we want to get rid of it. So the awareness then embraces this whole process. You're suddenly awakening to, say, just physical discomfort, physical pain. It is what it is. And you suddenly realize how much you're trying to get rid of it or deny it or run away from it. And you're discerning the difference. You're developing the wisdom to know that, that pain, physical pain, is part of the physical body experience. And we create the, the desire to get rid of the pain. You know, this is, there's a difference. The actual physical discomfort is one thing. And then we compound, we put on to that the whippa wadana, desire to get away or get rid of it. When you begin to see that, discern it, and then you realize physical pain is part of, uh, of this experience, physical experience, pleasure, pain, uh, conventional reality, sensory experience. Nobody has pleasure only. Uh, physical pleasure. There's always, you notice, much of life is painful. And that's natural. It's, a, it's the way things are. Pleasure and pain. So then, once you see that, then you, you can learn to stop creating the aversion to it. Through this open allowance for it to be what it is. So this relaxation, one of modern techniques for dealing with chronic pain is to relax into pain rather than to try to get, you know, if we tense ourselves up, we want to get rid of it through, through kind of, you know, forcing it away from us. It creates more pain. So it's learning to, to develop more patience, uh, acceptance of what, something that you don't want or like. And to be, see how, how we create this, uh, this desire to get rid of it. And then I found through that, then the, the, the body, if I'm not creating a habit around pain by trying to get rid of it, then actually the body relaxes. And a lot of physical pain is through tension, isn't it? It's, you increase the tension on your body, the pain gets worse. So these you begin to notice in just how things really are. The way they are, the truth of the way it is. So it gets back to this, all conditions are impermanent, all Dhamma is anatta or not self. And you know, it's like not to be anybody. You know, it's uh, not to have a self, not to identify with the self habits anymore. You know, if I, I, I'm, you know, it's so peaceful not to be anybody. 
where being somebody, being myself, my ego, I never get any peace from that, I'll tell you. I've got the most unpeaceful ego. And it doesn't give me much of a chance for peace at all. <laughs> uh, it's always criticizing or you know, it's, it's, it's an ego developed out of competitive uh, conditioning, idealism. And so it's uh, an ego that is always first aware of what's wrong with something, especially of oneself. So it tends to kind of tyrannize life. If I get lost in, in the ego habits, I usually you know, find life getting quite uh, stressful. So then the, but in this awareness, the ego is a created thing. It arises and ceases. You know, it's not, it's not, uh, so you're not what you think. You know, you're not, whatever you think you are, that's what you're not. Whatever way you believe, uh, the kind of person you are and the, your identities, uh, you're not any of that. Those are conventions. And to put them in the context of convention isn't dismissing them, it's recognizing their limitation. That you'll always be binding yourself to oftentimes very unsatisfactory conditions through this attachment to them. So you know, there's no point in suffering like that if, you, if there's a way out of it. So it's learning then to just trust in the awareness of it. It's not through changing your personality and trying to make yourself a better person, but transcending the whole thing through awareness. You know, for, when I first started monastic life, I was trying to change my personality. I was trying to become a really good Buddhist monk. So I was, you know, I was trying to become, make myself into a Buddhist monk uh, that is worthy of the alms food and worthy of the generosity of the lay people and, uh, and will be a credit to the monastery and Ajahn Chah will like me better if I'm a really good monk. If I'm not a very good monk, maybe Ajahn Chah won't like me. There's a lot of motivations in in, in trying to become, make yourself into a really good person or a good monk or a good nun. <clears throat> so that, you know, that's, uh, you know, I'd rather do that than try to make myself into a bad monk. <laughs> but, uh, but it's still not liberating. Even if you're the, the best monk in the whole monastery, it's still unsatisfying. Because it can always be someone better. <laughs> and best is always a peak, isn't it? You can't sustain the best. You know, you have your moments where you're, at the, you're the best, but then try to stay there, you know. <clears throat> on that level, of, of, on the conditioned realm of achieving or attainment of the best. So, 
that's obviously, you know, something, the best is impermanent, the worst is impermanent, good, better, bad, worse, the only thing that are impermanent, very great, you know, the whole thing is in the, is the changing process. So trying to become the best in, in that is, you know, it has its admirable qualities, but it, but it also will, will not be satisfied. In the long run, you'll fail and you'll become disillusioned. Because you're, you're trying to, to make something, make yourself into something, to fit some ideal that you have, and you'll never succeed at it. So, instead of trying to do that, the awakening of the Buddha, it's awakening, wake up to the way things are. Not trying to, if the thi- things aren't very good right now, you know, do you want to spend your life just trying to make the world the best? Solve all the problems and, and the ideal of, of, of an age of peace and love and, and fairness and justice, or everything, the whole conventional world is sorted out and is what it should be. But the world is the way it is because it's the the Dhamma, the way things are because of the the karma around them. So with all good intentions and desires to solve all the problems of the society and oneself and one's family and create the perfect society uh, you know, you'll, you'll never succeed at it because that's not the way it is. You can't make it that way. So, you, re- you notice civilizations, they reach a peak and then they start deteriorating. You know, so you get, you, get, uh, you know, kind of peak moments in civilizations that, and then they, they reach this kind of summit and then they start degenerating. That's just the natural flow of conditioned phenomena. So instead of trying to be, make yourself into the best person, awaken to beyond the person, beyond the the quality of best or worst, to recognize the way it is. And as you're experiencing the way it is, whatever way your mind works or the way your personality is or your emotional habits, no matter how good or bad or pure or impure they might be, that's not the, the point, is it? It's the awakening to that, the way they are. So here, the uh, just to encourage this, uh, this is the whole purpose of this place, Amravati, is uh, to provide uh, encouragement, an environment where this is uh, in, uh, uh, supported as best we can. So that you know, it's it's uh, it's you know, I'm not uh, you know. You think it's the best monastery in the whole... <laughs> you can't make it into the best monastery, I know that. 
but the, 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 the whole purpose of the place is for this. this in, in terms of how I see it anyway. To give this occasion and, uh, and, uh, and try to keep pointing in that direction which is really here. Keep looking at here rather than always looking out there to see how, you know, to, to like or dislike the conditions around you. But allow the conditions around you to reflect from, reflect from them the like and dislike, love and hate and attachment and so forth, the, uh, views that we form, opinions that we have. They begin to recognize they are, they are what they are. Now this is not a cult, so you don't have to believe this is the best place and we, we've got the best way and our group is the best. But even if you think we're the absolute pits in terms of Buddhism, at least that's a mental state you can witness to. <laughs> Isn't it? It's Nietzsche. It's, it's like any other view. So the more you're willing to, to uh, develop this, trust in it, then, then you'll, you'll benefit. Yeah. I've found my own experience, enormous transformation, breaking out of the, of the rigidity and the suffocation of my habitual patterns that I was so uh, attached to and blinded by. So I offer this as a reflection for this evening. <laughs>